Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton, and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. Today's section of Parshat Chukat, 13 verses in total, in chapter 20, constitutes one of the Torah's most cryptic accounts. It contains the story of Moshe and Aharon's transgression for which they were denied entry into the land of Israel. These 13 verses can be broadly divided into three smaller units. The first section, verses 1 through 6, describes the people's arrival at Kadesh in the wilderness of Tzin. There Miriam dies the people thirst for water, and they strive with Moshe and Aharon. In the second section, verses 7 through 11, God commands Moshe and Aharon to speak to the rock. And Moshe transgresses by striking it instead. The last verses of the section, 12 and 13, are God's response. Because you did not believe in me and you did not sanctify me, lo taviu et hakahal hazeh el haaretz asher natati lahem. You will not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. In broad strokes, one might say that with this brief episode, all of Israel's leaders since the exodus from Egypt, Moshe, Aharon and Miriam suddenly pass from the scene. Our section begins. Vayavu vene Yisrael kol ha'eda midbar tzin b'chodesh harishon vayeshev ha'am b'kadesh v'tamot sham Miriam v'tikaver sham the people of Israel arrived, the entire congregation, at the wilderness of Tzin in the first month. The people encamped at Kadesh. At that place Miriam died and she was buried there. Rashi comments, Kol ha'eda, eda ha'shlema, Shikvar metu metemidbar ve'elu parshu lechayim. When the verse says that the entire congregation arrived, it means to indicate that the generation of the wilderness had already died out, and these had been separated for life. With a, with a remarkable economy of words, Rashi informs us of the startling new reality. The old generation had died out and was no more. And with the arrival at Midbartzin in the first month, a new chapter in the history of the people of Israel commences. As the new generation that will enter the land takes their place. Ibn Ezra's formulation 
is even more startling. Ibn Ezra informs us when the text reports that they arrived in the first month, it means the first month of the 40th year. In the Torah, there is absolutely nothing that is recorded, neither narrative nor prophecy, unless it occurred in the first, in the first year, the year of the Exodus, or in the 40th year. Ibn Ezra informs us that with rare exception, the entire contents of the Torah, from the moment that the people leave the land of Egypt until the end of Sefer Devarim, essentially takes place within the time span of two short years. Either the very first year after the Exodus, or the 40th year as the people prepare to enter the land. In essence, with that comment, Ibn Ezra informs us that the generation of the wilderness, Dor Hamidbar, disappears in the sands of Paran and the Sinai. Chapter 33 of Sefer Bimidbar mentions 20 stations where the people of Israel encamped during their journey through the wilderness as they made their way from Mount Sinai to Midbartzin. And yet no other information concerning these 38 years is shared in the Torah's narrative. In essence, the generation that passes without a trace is paralleled by the literary silence of the Torah. Their story is simply not told. This first verse indicates that as the people arrive at Kadesh and camp there, Miriam dies and is buried. This, of course, constitutes a closing of the circle for Miriam. We first met her in Parshat Shmot as she stationed herself close by the basket of reeds in the river to ensure that her baby brother would be safe. His sister planted herself, stood herself at a distance to see what would become. And when the people left the land of Egypt and crossed the Sea of Reeds and sang their triumphant song of praise, Miriam sang as well. Vatikach Miriam Hanivi'ah Achot Aharon etatof biyada. Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aharon, took the timbrel in her hand and she led all the women 
in song and in dance. Much of Miriam's story revolves around the medium of water. Water is vitality. Water is inspiration. With the people's passing in Parshat Chukat, she too expires. In the Midrash, these ideas are woven together. Our text reported that after the death of Miriam, in the next verse, that there was no water for the congregation. As the Midrash understands it, it is through the merit of Miriam that the, that the people of Israel secured water during the 40 years of the wilderness. Be'er Miriam. And so therefore, as the wilderness wanderings wind down, it should not surprise us that Miriam now takes her leave. And as she does so, verse 2 reports, V'lo haya mayim la'ida, v'yikahalu al Moshe ve'al Aharon. There was no water for the congregation. And they congregated, they gathered against Moshe and against Aharon. V'yarev ha'ami Moshe v'yomru le'mor v'lugavanu, the people strove with Moshe and they said, if only we would have died as our brethren died before God rather than to die of thirst. Why have you brought the congregation of God to this wilderness to die there, both us and our flocks? Why have you taken us out of the land of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of planting. It is not a place of figs or grapes or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. In this litany of woe, the people of Israel blame Moshe and Aharon for their predicament. You are responsible for bringing us here. You are responsible for the fact that we will perish. At the same time, however, reading between the lines, we can hear their impatience, their desire to enter the land their desperation at still being stationed in the dry wilderness. The Torah continues. Vayavo Moshe v'yaharon mipnei ha-kahal el petach ohel moed vayiplu al pneihem vayera chivod adunai alehem. Moshe and Aharon came from before the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell upon their faces. God's glory was revealed to them. The second section now begins. Moshe <laughs> 
והוצאתה להם מים מן הסלע, והשקיתה את העדה ואת בעירם. Take the staff and gather the congregation, you and Aharon your brother. Speak to the rock in their presence, before their eyes, and it will give forth its water. You will extract water for them from the rock, and you will cause the congregation and their flocks to drink. We note that in this verse, Moshe is commanded to take the staff and to assemble the people. Typically, the staff was the instrument for the performance of miracles. This was true in the build-up to the Exodus and in other episodes during the wilderness wanderings. Moshe took the staff from before God as he had commanded him. We note as well that the verse seems to state explicitly God's instructions are to speak to the rock. One might wonder, as the Ramban will, why a staff would be, re- would be required if the command is to speak. A staff implies striking. What God demands of Moshe is to speak. Why then does he ask him to take the staff with? We might compare our account briefly with a similar one in Sefer Shmot, chapter 17. This is an episode concerning the people's initial entry into the wilderness 40 years earlier. They come to Rifidim, there is no water, and they thirst. They strive with Moshe. They demand relief. Moshe turns to God and God commands him, take your staff with which you hit the Eor, with which you hit the Nile, and go forward. Behold, I stand before you upon the rock at Chorev. You will strike the rock. The waters will come forth and the people will drink. And in that episode, Moshe did precisely that in the presence of the elders of Israel. The elements are quite similar. A people who thirst, an adamant rock, and a command to take the staff. In the first version, which introduced the people's entry into the wilderness, Moshe is told to strike the rock explicitly. In the second version, as the people prepare to leave the wilderness, Moshe is told to speak to the rock. The Ramban's wonder there, therefore, is why is Moshe told in our section to take the staff with him if ultimately the command is not to strike, but rather to speak. Vayakilu, I return now to our section, Vayakilu Moshe v'yaharon takahal el pnei hasala. 
ויאמר להם שמעו נא המורים המן הסלע הזה נוציא לכם מים. משה נהרון gathered the congregation to the rock and he said to them here now you rebels shall we extract for you water from this very rock we are of course surprised by Moshe's outburst after all the people are thirsty certainly their complaints are no more severe than at other episodes recorded in the Torah and yet Moshe responds here with language harsh in the extreme listen you rebels I'm going to continue reading through the verses and then we will explore some of the commentaries that begin to pull the material together Amin Hasela Hazeh Moshe had exclaimed, Shall we extract water from this very rock? Hamin, of course, has the prefix hey, hey hasheila. Shall we extract water? Is it a rhetorical question? Is it a real question? Moshe lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. Much water gushed forth and the congregation and their flocks drank. Why is it that Moshe strikes and doesn't speak? Why is it that he strikes twice? Why do the waters gush forth if Moshe has abrogated God's explicit command? Verse 12 reports, <laughs> Moshe, God said to Moshe Naharon, Because you did not trust in me to sanctify me in the presence of all of the people of Israel, therefore you will not bring this congregation into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of strife for the people of Israel strove with God and he was sanctified through them. Let us now consider some of the interpretations that have been offered to explain this episode. As we do so, we will keep in mind Nachmanides' introductory remarks. The transgression of Moshe and Aharon at the waters of Merivah is not stated explicitly in the text. Ramban is essentially acknowledging 
that the Torah does not give us a full explanation of what the indiscretion was and why the divine reaction is so harsh. We will discover that there are in fact a multiplicity of interpretations. This is a sure sign that the Torah is not explicit on the matter. We will begin with Rashi. Rashi offers the following comment. Lahaktisheni. God had said to Moshe Naharon, you did not sanctify me in the presence of the people of Israel. Rashi comments, if you would have, if you would have instead spoken to the rock, and it would have brought forth water, I would have been sanctified in the eyes of the people. For the people would have said, this rock which cannot speak and cannot hear and doesn't require any sustenance fulfills the word of God, all the more so ought we fulfill the word of God. Rashi is effectively asking us to consider what would have happened had Moshe spoken to the rock instead of striking it. How would the story have been different? In Rashi's interpretation, Israel would have been inspired to follow Hashem. They would have seen a rock that listens to the word of God in spite of the fact that a rock is static, that a rock is adamant, that a rock is lifeless, and that for a rock there are no stakes in not listening to the word of God. And yet the rock brought forth water at his command? All the more so, argues Rashi, the people would have said, we are prepared to listen to the command of God and to follow his words. In Rashi's interpretation, of course, there never was an intention for Moshe to strike the rock at all. We might understand that the initial command for Moshe to take the staff with him was in fact to demonstrate a pointed contrast. As if God was saying to Moshe, I want you to take your staff and to approach the rock and not to use it. Because this is a rock that will respond to words. And the people of Israel will respond to words as well. Well, Rashi points a powerful, well, Rashi paints a powerful image of what would have been. Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra offers seven other possibilities as to what Moshe's indiscretion was. He rejects all of them. The final possibility, his own, he expresses in cryptic and concise language. I will only mention a few of the possibilities that he offers. 
We will return to some of them later as we make our way through some of the other commentaries. Interpretation number one in Ibn Ezra posits that Moshe's transgression was to refer to the people of Israel as rebellious ones. In fact, says Ibn Ezra, they are Bnei Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. They are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, language such as that, which Moshe used to describe the people of Israel, is unforgivable. In another possible interpretation, Ibn Ezra fo focuses our attention on a different phrase in the account. Remember that Moshe spoke to the people and he said, Hamin Shall we take water out of this rock for you? What Moshe really meant to say was, you can see how impossible it is for me to take water out of the rock. Do you think I'm really capable of taking water out of the rock? Obviously I can't. It's only God that can bring water out of the rock. That's what Moshe intended. But Ibn Ezra posits what some people actually heard or understood was, Hamin hatsela chemaim, there's no way that water can be taken out of this rock at all. Neither by us, nor by God. It's a rhetorical question. Do you really think we can bring forth water? Of course not. People understood that to mean even God couldn't bring forth water. And for this indiscretion they are punished. In a third interpretation, Ibn Ezra posits that the reason for the punishment is that Moshe Naharon did not sing a song of praise after the rock brought forth its water. In this interpretation, effectively, there's nothing in the story itself to explain why they are punished. It's only what should have been the aftermath of the story that explains why they're punished. Interestingly, in, interestingly enough, later in the Parsha, we will have a similar episode. The people of Israel will sing a song to the well that gives forth water. In chapter 21, verses 16 and 17, God fate gave forth water from from the well, and the people of Israel sang this very song, Ali Ve'er Anula, chapter 21, verse 17. Without going into all of the details, Ibn Ezra rejects all of these possibilities on textual and thematic grounds. His own answer, expressed only elusively, resembles that of Maimonides, the Rambam, who writes about the sin of Moshe Naharon in his introduction to his commentary on the Mishnah of Tractate Avot. This introduction is popularly known as the Shmone Prakim, the eight chapters, in which Rambam sets down some basic principles of character development. Rambam remarks, 
that Moshe's transgression was that Moshe became angry in a situation that did not require it. And to become angry when not required constitutes for Moshe a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name. Because people learn from Moshe's example all the time. And if Moshe became angry in a situation when it wasn't necessary, then that serves as a bad example for the rest of us. The Rambam, of course, in this commentary, develops his famous principle of the golden mean. To stray from the golden mean in either direction is a risky business that brings destruction in its wake. For the Rambam, the focus of his interpretation are the words in the text, Shim Unah Hamorim, listen you rebels. The Rambam detects anger in Moshe's words. Nachmanides, however, disagrees vociferously. Shimunah Morim is not anger at all. It's simply well-deserved rebuke. Just as Moshe administered to the people throughout the Torah. So whereas Rambam sees Moshe's transgression to be the transgression of anger, the Ramban Nachmanides disagrees. And after going through a number of possibilities, before settling on his mystical interpretation, the Ramban offers what he calls something al-derech hapshat, and as he puts it, v'hutov lidchot hashoel, I offer this simply to push away the question, not because I necessarily believe, says the Ramban, that it is the best answer. The Ramban returns us to one of the interpretations that Ibn Ezra rejected, but offers a slightly different twist. When Moshe said, Hamin hasela hazeh will we take water out of this rock? He made it seem as if he was responsible for doing so. As if Moshe could do it on his own. We will take water out of this rock. Is that what you want, people? Then we will do it. What Moshe should have said is, Yotzi Hashem Lachem Maim. God will bring water out of the rock, not me. This is based on the commentary of Rabbi Nuchananel. Finally, we will consider the novel interpretation of the Abarbanel. Don Yitzchak Abarbanel writes at length on this episode and on every episode in the Torah. His commentary is known for its comprehensiveness, for its breadth, for its depth, and for its originality. Abarbanel basically argues that Moshe's punishment and Aharon's punishment 
at May Meriva in our section, effectively was only a pretext. Really, Moshe and Aharon were being punished for other things entirely. Aharon was being punished for Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf, which had happened almost 40 years earlier. And Moshe was being punished for Cheta Miraglim, the sin of the spies. As he puts it, my opinion is, Aharon Kedosh Hashem meit ba'avon ha'egel, u'moshe adoneinu meit ba'avon ha'miraglim. Really, Aharon will die because of the sin of the golden calf, and Moshe, our master, dies because of the sin of the spies. And Abarbanel goes on to analyze how in both of these episodes, these leaders demonstrated a good intention, but through that good intention, they brought about a consequence or an outcome which was destructive for the people. For instance, Aharon constructed the golden calf, not as a rival to God, not as an idol, but simply as a delaying tactic. Little did he know that as a result of that, many people would die who would embrace that bovine golden object as a god. As for Moshe, when God commanded him to send the spies, he simply said, Let them tour the land of Canaan that I give to the people of Israel and bring back reports of its bounty and its beauty. But when Moshe sent them, he gave them a detailed list of questions to answer. Are the people weak and are, or are the people strong? Are the cities fortified or are they not? Is the land good or is it bad? And essentially, by offering the spies that list of questions to answer, Moshe opened a Pandora's box because the spies did answer those questions, but with a defeatist report that ultimately led to ruin. In effect, Abarbanel argues, En safek shahayu tova, both of these leaders had a good intention. But the outcome was the outcome as a result of their decisions. We might summarize Abarbanel's interpretation by saying, since Moshe and Aharon, each one, in his own situation, inadvertently led to the people of Israel perishing and not entering the land, they too must perish with him, not because they are guilty of their crime, but because they are their leaders. And the leaders of the people remain with their flock until the end because they are responsible for their welfare and they are responsible for everything that happens to them. If the people of Israel, the generation of the wilderness, 
is denied entry into the land, then it must follow that Moshe Naharon, and perhaps Miriam by extension, must remain behind with them.